Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, let me also welcome those who are watching us on Cato live streaming. I'm Roger Pilon, the uh, Vice President for Legal Affairs at Cato and your host for today's forum. Let me ask you, please, in the, as a courtesy to our speakers, to turn off your cell phones or at least put them on vibrator. Um, we're here to celebrate the publication of a new book uh, on the uh, life of remarkable American Frederick Douglass, uh, and still more to uh, honor the man himself as we approach the bicentennial of his birth next Wednesday. Uh, the date is an educated guess uh, since Douglas was born to an enslaved mother on a Maryland plantation where few records were kept. But what we do know is that Douglas made of himself uh, once he escaped his chains as a young man. Against all odds, he would go on to become one of the nation's foremost intellectuals, a, statement, a statesman, author, lecturer, and scholar who helped lead the fight against slavery and racial oppression. But unlike some other prominent abolitionists, Douglas embraced the Constitution as an anti-slavery document, a guarantee of individual rights of all Americans of all races. Uh, we're proud to have published this uh, book, which, makes its, uh, which takes its subtitle, Self-Made Man, from Douglas's most popular lecture, Self-Made Men. In that speech, he spoke of people who rise above their own efforts uh, who rise through their own efforts rather than through privileged circumstances. And in this book today, Cato adjunct scholar Timothy Sandifer takes a fresh look at Douglas's extraordinary life, focusing especially on his ideas and his devotion to the enduring principles of liberty and equality. Let me introduce Tim to you. He'll then discuss some of the central themes of the book after which we'll hear comments from our two other students of uh, Frederick Douglass, Juan Williams and Jonathan Blanks. I'll introduce each uh, at, before he speaks. The book is available uh, at a discount just outside, so those of you who want to pick up a copy, I'm sure that uh, Tim will be glad to sign it for you during our reception following the event. Tim Sandiver is Vice President for Litigation at the Goldwater Institute's Scharf Norton Center for Constitutional Litigation, where he holds the Duncan Chair in Constitutional Government. He's litigated important cases for economic liberty, private property rights, and free speech in several states. And in addition to the book we feature today, he's the author of Cornerstone of Liberty, Property Rights in the 21st Century America, which he co-authored with his wife, Christina. The Permission Society, The Conscience of the Constitution, and The Right to Earn a Living, the last three of which uh, were um, published by the Cato Institute. And he's, done, he's written several uh, dozens of um, scholarly articles on subjects ranging from Indian law to antitrust, slavery and the Civil War, and political issues in Shakespeare, ancient Greek drama, and Star Trek. He's a true polymath. Uh, as I noted, uh, Tim is an adjunct scholar with the Cato Institute. He's a graduate of Hillsdale College and Chapman University School of Law. Please welcome Tim Sandifer. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm deeply honored to be able to join you today to celebrate the memory of Frederick Douglass, one of this nation's greatest champions of individual liberty. 
Born into slavery in 1818, the son of a white man he never knew and of a mother he never saw after the age of seven, deprived of an education and a family, Douglas was forced to steal his learning. He escaped on the Underground Railroad at the age of 20 and became one of the nation's most famous or infamous abolitionists. At the end of the Civil War, he became one of the founding fathers of the reborn United States. Douglas is an inspiration not just for his personal experience, but also because of his intellectual work. As a classical liberal, what we today call libertarian, Douglas believed that if black Americans were allowed their freedom, not government paternalism, but freedom, they would succeed through their own individual efforts just as other races had. If you will only untie their hands, he said, I think they will live. One reason Douglas is relevant today is because he teaches us what classical liberalism has to offer to racial minorities. Here, I will suggest just a few things. First, Douglas was insistent on the right of black Americans to arm themselves for self-defense. Citizenship, he was fond of saying, depends on three boxes, the jury box, the ballot box, and the cartridge box. Efforts by southern states to disarm black Americans in the years after the war were obviously a dangerous step toward a terrorist state in which white supremacist organizations could massacre blacks at will. Sadly, the former Confederate states largely succeeded in that effort thanks to the collapse of Reconstruction in the 1870s, a period Douglas regarded with increasing alarm. No lamb was ever more completely within the power of the wolf, he said, than black Southerners who had been forced to surrender all arms and ammunition. Second, Douglas understood the critical role private property rights plays in protecting members of minority groups against oppression and exploitation. He deplored the sharecropping system and other tactics adopted in the South in the years after the war to deprive black Americans of the ability to own their own land and to profit from it through their own hard work. It is right that mankind should own land, he said. It is his duty to possess it. He rejected socialism and did not endorse efforts by his friends to redistribute land in the conquered South to former slaves. He was familiar with examples of other minorities, notably the Irish in Great Britain and Indians in North America, who were deprived of the security of property rights and lived instead as wards of the state. Such groups were always at the mercy of politics and were therefore always inherently insecure. Douglas would not have been surprised by 20th century innovations such as racially exclusive zoning or urban renewal projects through which black Americans were thrown off of their land in the name of redevelopment. This was highlighted by the Supreme Court's awful eminent domain decision 13 years ago, Kelo versus New London. As Justice Clarence Thomas wrote in that case, allowing the government to take property for any economically beneficial goal guarantees that losses will fall disproportionately on minorities who are not only systematically less likely to put their lands to the highest and best social use, but are also the least politically powerful. Another point that Douglas emphasized was the critical role that economic liberty plays in advancing the interests of minorities who need the freedom to compete in the job market. As this audience no doubt already knows, licensing laws and other restrictions on economic freedom disproportionately harm minority groups who typically have less access to education or the political influence necessary to get exempted from licensing requirements. 
The Obama administration's 2015 report on licensing emphasized that lower-income workers are less likely to be able to afford the tuition and lost wages associated with licensing's educational requirements, closing the door to many licensed jobs for them. But Douglas was there a century and a half earlier. In 1865, for example, he denounced Union General Nathaniel Banks for imposing limits on wages and terms of employment for former slaves in occupied Louisiana. Banks required black workers to get his permission before taking jobs in order, he said, to prepare the Negro for as perfect an independence as that enjoyed by any other class. Douglas was incensed. That policy practically enslaves the freedmen, he declared. What is freedom? It is the right to choose one's own employment. Certainly it means that if it means anything. And when any individual or combination of individuals undertakes to decide for any man when he shall work, where he shall work, at what he shall work, and for what he shall work, he or they practically reduce him to slavery. This was a theme that Douglas always came back to. He despised the idea that government should take care of people or help or protect them from their own choices. That attitude, he feared, would not only breed a sense of dependency in people, but would expose them to injury later if the government decided to withdraw its favors. What shall be done with the four million slaves if they are emancipated, he said. Our answer is do nothing with them. Mind your own business and let them mind theirs. Your doing with them is their greatest misfortune. They have been undone by your doings, and all they now ask and really have need of at your hands is just to let them alone. As colored men, we only ask to be allowed to do for ourselves. Probably Douglass's most profound contribution to the idea of freedom, one that is sometimes overlooked in the existing literature, was his emphasis on the virtue of personal pride while he embraced equality, he rejected any notion of subordination, humility, or self-effacement, attitudes on both sides of the slavery question or after the war on the question of race relations. Douglas believed that freedom could only survive among individuals who valued themselves highly, who refused to surrender their sense of self-worth either to the, to the state or to any other person. People should respect one another, but should never sacrifice their dignity, their commitments, their emotional self-control, or their intellectual independence. His personal motto was a line borrowed from Lord Byron, who would be free must himself strike the blow. He believed that what is honorable in each person of any race or sex is that person's inalienable uniqueness. That was a valuable lesson for black Americans in his day, of course, but it is equally valid for all of us today. Personal pride and individualism are essential to political freedom because a person who is proud and who has earned that pride is not properly subordinated to the state. If we are to be free to pursue happiness, we must believe and be justified in the belief that we deserve to pursue happiness. Douglas is relevant to today's political controversies in other ways too. In 1878, he gave a magnificent speech entitled, There Was a Right Side in the Late War in which he complained about the fact that Americans were increasingly willing to forget the role that slavery played in the Civil War, were erecting monuments to Confederate generals, and were teaching schoolchildren that the war had just been about secession or states' rights instead of slavery. This was incredibly dangerous, he warned, because it provided an excuse to ignore racist oppression in the South. 
In fact, the war had not been about states' rights, he told the audience. It was a war of ideas, a battle of principles between the old and the new, slavery and freedom, barbarism and civilization, between a government based on the broadest and grandest declaration of human rights the world ever heard or read, and another pretended government based upon an open, bold, and shocking denial of all rights except the right of the strongest. For white Americans to ignore the fact that the war had been over this central moral issue was to betray truth and justice. We must not be asked to say that the South was right, he said. The North must not be asked to be ashamed of our part in the war. That message is important to libertarians today, I am afraid, because of a prominent element within the libertarian community that still contends that the Confederacy was right, that the Lincoln administration acted illegally in putting down the rebellion, and that slavery would have magically withered away if only no action had been taken. These are falsehoods. As I have explained at length elsewhere, secession is in fact illegal. The Lincoln administration acted lawfully in putting down the rebellion, and there is no basis for the belief that slavery would have ended on its own. The prevalence of pro-Confederate myths today encourages the presence with, of an element within our ranks, popularly called the alt-right, that rejects the principles of the Declaration of Independence, applauds or at least shrugs at racism, and betrays the basic ideas of liberty for which heroes like Douglas fought. The reality is that libertarianism today is the offspring of abolitionist thinkers like Douglas and Garrison, not of the Confederates who thought, in the words of John C. Calhoun, that it is a great and dangerous error to suppose that all people are equally entitled to liberty, or who claim that state governments have rights that take precedence over the individual. There was a right side in the war, the Union side. There was a wrong side, the Confederacy. We libertarians owe it to ourselves to repudiate the alt-right along with anyone else who would slur the cause of freedom and constitutionalism. I want to say a little bit more about constitutionalism because as a lawyer specializing in the Constitution, I was particularly drawn to Douglas because of one of the most important aspects of his life, his embrace of the Constitution as an anti-slavery document. Unlike both defenders of slavery and many of its foremost, uh, the foremost abolitionists, Douglas thought that the Constitution was essentially hostile to slavery and that slavery was unconstitutional before the 13th Amendment. Now this is contrary to the prevailing view among historians and law professors today, but it was a respectable opinion in the 1850s and it's critical to understand if we are to make sense of the 14th Amendment. When Douglas escaped north in the 1830s, the nation was dividing into two camps, the pro-slavery side, which held that slavery was constitutionally protected, and the abolitionists, led primarily by William Lloyd Garrison, who agreed with that and for that reason denounced the Constitution as a fundamentally evil document. Garrison argued that the North should secede from the Union to stop supporting slavery and urged abolitionists not to vote or participate in politics because that only lent credibility to the system. He burned the Constitution at his July 4th speeches, denouncing it as a contract with the devil. At first, Douglas agreed. He was brought into the abolitionist movement in, the, in his early 20s by Garrison himself and sent on lecture tours throughout the country. He repeated the Garrisonian position that the nation was so corrupted by slavery that nothing short of total obliteration of the government would satisfy. But after he spent a year in Great Britain and obtained his freedom, Douglas returned to the US and founded his own newspaper in Rochester, New York, a city far removed from Garrison's influence. 
And there he fell in with Jarrett Smith, an abolitionist and philanthropist uh, who funded anti-slavery work, the, the Koch brothers of his day. Smith believed that the Constitution was not an evil pro-slavery document, but an essentially anti-slavery document that provided a legal framework to be used in ending the peculiar institution. And in 1851, after years of public debates, Smith and his allies changed Douglas's mind. Now here's how the anti-slavery argument worked. First, the rules of interpretation. A law only means what it says, not what the authors meant for it to say. That means that even if the founders wanted to protect slavery, that doesn't matter unless we find slavery actually protected in the language of the Constitution. And we must interpret the Constitution in favor of freedom whenever possible, and only if we are compelled to do so, interpret it as protecting slavery. Douglas embraced what Randy Barnett has called the presumption of liberty. Slavery's defenders, he said, presume the Negro is slave unless he can prove himself free. I, on the other hand, presume him free unless he has proved otherwise. With those rules in mind, Douglas looked at the opening words of the Constitution. We, the people of the United States. Now, who are the people of the United States? The Constitution makes no distinction between races, right? It refers only to the whole American people. Slaves must therefore be part of the people of the United States who ordain the Constitution, and they must be among the people who enjoy such rights as due process and habeas corpus. Next, the Constitution never uses the word slave or slavery and provides it with no permanent legal security. At most, supporters of slavery were forced to infer protections from a document that made no reference to it. In fact, Douglas said, not a single word of the Constitution would have to be changed to allow Congress to eradicate slavery. Slavery's defenders responded by pointing to five oblique references to slavery in the Constitution, the Fugitive Slave Clause, the Three-Fifths Clause, the clause giving Congress power to put down insurrections and uprisings, the Importation Clause, and the provision forbidding Congress from banning the slave trade before 1808. But following the rule that we must interpret the Constitution as pro-freedom when possible, Douglas argued that even these were not protections for slavery. The Fugitive Slave Clause, for instance, does not actually refer to slaves, but to persons from whom labor is due. Labor is not due from slaves, since they are victims of an injustice who have not been given due process of law. Labor is instead due from apprentices or indentured servants who have signed contracts. The clause refers to them. Nor does the Three-Fifths Clause protect slavery. Instead, it recognized the existence of slavery and tried to find a way to apportion representation on that basis. In fact, Douglas noted that the clause created an incentive for states to free slaves, because if they did, they'd get more representation in Congress. Third, federal power to put down insurrections makes no reference to slavery, but is intended to prevent rebellions like the Shays Rebellion or the Whiskey Rebellion, which were not slave uprisings. And as for slave, the slave trade, Douglas pointed out those clauses actually empowered Congress to abolish the slave trade in 1808, which it did, right on schedule. Douglas went further. The Constitution also included provisions that could be actively used to eradicate slavery. For instance, it guarantees to every state a Republican form of government. And as even James Madison admitted, slavery makes a mockery of Republican government. It also prohibits bills of attainder or punishment without due process. And it guarantees habeas corpus, all of which slavery disregards. And then there was the Privileges and Immunities Clause of Article 4 which says that every state must respect the privileges and immunities of citizens of the several states, prohibiting state governments from depriving American citizens of their rights. That clause reflected the idea that there was a federal citizenship that is distinct from state citizenship, and federal citizenship and the rights that come with it take precedence over state law. 
as we've seen, slaves must be citizens, so that means slavery must be unconstitutional. In embracing this interpretation, Douglas broke with his old friend Garrison, a break that hurt them both deeply. But Douglas saw that Garrison and other anarchist abolitionists who despised the Constitution and politics were not helping the slaves. They were abandoning the tools that could be used to establish freedom. They had started out to free the slave, he said, and were now abandoning the slave to free himself. Worse yet, Garrison was actually agreeing with the champions of slavery in saying that the Constitution was not for black Americans and by extrapolation that America was not for black people. The notion that the Constitution's authors meant to protect slavery, said Douglas, is Judge Taney's interpretation in the Dred Scott case, and it is Mr. Garrison's argument, but it is not the argument of the Constitution. Now this theory strikes modern ears as strange because we've been taught that the Constitution was written by slave owners who wanted to perpetuate or at least not interfere with slavery. Professor Akhil Amar, for example, writes that the Constitution, quote, must be deemed pro-slavery, end quote. And another contemporary scholar writes that the court was right to say in Dred Scott that the America's founding fathers meant this to be a white nation. Even Justice Thurgood Marshall said that, quote, the self-evident truths and unalienable rights referred to in the Declaration were intended to apply only to white men, end quote. How shocking that celebrated legal intellectuals think Dred Scott was rightly decided, but they do. Douglas, by contrast, believed Dred Scott was wrongly decided because slavery was not guaranteed by the Constitution. Interpreted as it ought to be interpreted, he said, the Constitution is a glorious liberty document. This was not just wishful thinking on his part or political opportunism. It reflected his considered view of the nation's highest law, an interpretation that is very far from being implausible. In fact, when secession came in 1861, Douglas saw it as proof he'd been right. It was the pro-slavery side that had been forced to abandon the Constitution because it gave no legal protection to slavery and did give the federal government power to restrict or to end it. Now, all of this is relevant today for two reasons. The first is that when the war ended and Reconstruction Republicans amended the Constitution to fix the flaws that caused the war, they did so by drafting the 14th Amendment to constitutionalize their understanding of how the document should have been understood all along. They saw themselves less as altering the Constitution and more as rescuing it from bad interpretations. That amendment declares, first, all persons born in the U.S. and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state where they reside. That deprives states of any pretense to, so to sovereignty. You can't be a sovereign if you can't say who your citizens are. Second, it prohibits states from depriving citizens of their privileges or immunities, just as the anti-slavery constitutionalists had argued before the war. Next, states must respect due process and treat people equally. In other words, the amendment was designed to ensure a nationwide foundation of freedom, which states could not override or disregard. Individual rights must take precedence over state autonomy. That's why Douglas was so disappointed when the Supreme Court effectively erased part of that amendment in the 1873 slaughterhouse cases. This is for you, Roger. The court declared that notwithstanding that amendment, most individual rights are left to the state governments for security and protection. This, Douglas said, is an impractical doctrine. It was the folly of harnessing a horse at each end of the wagon. The one defeats the efforts of the other. The nation affirms, the state denies, and there's no progress. The true doctrine is one nation, one country, one citizenship, and one law for all the people. But there's a broader reason why Douglass's thought is critical today. 
Throughout his long career, Douglas insisted that the American dream was real and meaningful for black Americans, that black citizens had a role in this nation and were entitled to the freedoms articulated in the Declaration of Independence and guaranteed in the Constitution, the same as everyone else. He rejected the white supremacist idea that America is only for white people and that black Americans should move or be sent to colonies in Africa or Central America. As late as 1894, only a year before his death, he was emphatic in denouncing this notion. All this native land talk is nonsense, he said. The native land of the American Negro is America. His bones, his muscles, his sinews are all American. His ancestors for 270 years have lived, labored, and died on American soil. In his belief that black Americans were equally entitled to the American dream, Douglas stood not only against the rising tide of racism in his day, but also opposed to some of the most prominent intellectuals in our own. For example, one of the most celebrated black writers today, Ta-Nehisi Coates, has made it his mission to persuade us that white supremacists are right, and that America is, in fact, a white nation in which black Americans have no place and no hope. It is no exaggeration to say that the thesis of his book, Between the World and Me, is that black Americans should abandon belief in the American dream, in fact, should cease to dream at all. He ridicules the American dream as a contemptible stew of naive sloganeering and ignorant greed. The dream, he argues, is a fraud constructed to rationalize the exploitation of what he calls black bodies, a term he uses again and again, and no wonder, because bodies do not dream. What is most upsetting about this is that in the history of black America, it was never bodies that were in doubt. It was their minds. It was not their race that was denied and ignored. It was their humanity. It was not their bodies that were left to dry like raisins in the sun. It was their dreams. Douglas spent 20 years in slavery. He had better reason than any American today to view the dream cynically and call it a lie. And he did say that about some things in his day, including the Christian church but he did not say it about the dream. Even when, late in life, he declared that the emancipation itself was a fraud, he did so because it had not shielded the freedmen against betrayal of the dream. My mission, he said, is to plead the cause of millions of our countrymen against injustice, oppression, meanness, cruelty, and to hasten the day when the principles of liberty and humanity expressed in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence shall be the law and the practice of every section and of all the people in this great country without regard to race, sex, color, or religion. It was racism that was the fraud, not the dream. Coates is essentially the anti-Douglas. He writes that white supremacy, quote, remains as it has since 1776 at the heart of this country's political life, end quote. Douglas thought that the heart of this country's political life was the proposition that all men are created equal. That, he said, is the ring bolt to the chain of your nation's destiny. The principles contained in the Declaration are saving principles. Stand by those principles. Be true to them on all occasions, in all places, against all foes, at whatever cost. Coates, by contrast, writes that, quote, the meaning of the sacred equality to which the Declaration refers is the right to break the black body. Any white supremacist would shout, amen. Douglas, by contrast, offers us a vision of radical inclusion. 
We are Americans, he said in 1853. We address you not as aliens or exiles, humbly asking to be permitted to dwell among you in peace, but we address you as American citizens asserting their rights on their own native soil, as justice knows no rich, no poor, no black, no white, but renders alike to every man reward and punishment according as his works shall be. The white and black man must stand upon an equal footing before the laws of the land. And all the truths in the whole universe of God are allied to our cause. It's shameful that prominent thinkers today applaud a writer who counsels black Americans to repudiate the American dream and accept the idea that this nation is so thoroughly saturated with white supremacy that it is beyond realistic hope of rescue. But it is especially shocking when one reflects that when the average American today hears the word dream, he does not think of James Truslow Adams, the racist author who first used that phrase in his 1930 book, The Epic of America. Instead, when he hears the word dream today, he thinks of Martin Luther King, who articulated American ideals better than probably any person in living memory. I believe that Douglas and King were right. Black Americans not only have every right to the American dream, they probably have a greater stake in it than white Americans do. God knows they've suffered more for it. There is no Negro problem, said Douglas near the end of his life. The problem is whether the American people have honesty enough, loyalty enough, honor enough, patriotism enough to live up to their own constitution. That challenge remains before us still. The United States promises to all freedom to pursue happiness. A promise that is open to all because it is premised on the self-evident truth that all people are created equal with none entitled to tell another how he or she may live. It is up to every generation to vindicate these principles as best they can against British tyranny, against Southern slavery, against the Nazi or Soviet menace, against segregation and Jim Crow, and today against xenophobia, nationalism, protectionism, against the alt-right, and against progressive racialist nihilism, and against any other ideology that threatens the principles in which this nation was conceived and dedicated. Douglas was right that the American dream is for all of us, that the Constitution's promises are for everyone, and that the true doctrine is one nation, one country, one citizenship, and one law for all the people. In his belief in equality, in personal independence and pride, and in the rightfulness of the American dream for all Americans, Douglas still speaks to us today and still deserves our admiration. This great American's lasting importance has never been better articulated than by one of my favorite poets, Robert Hayden, who wrote in 1966, when it is finally ours, this freedom, this liberty, this beautiful and terrible thing, needful to man as air, usable as earth, when it belongs at last to all, when it is truly instinct, brain matter, diastole, systole, reflex action, when it is finally won, when it is more than the gaudy mumbo jumbo of politicians, this man, this Douglas, this former slave, this Negro beaten to his knees, exiled, visioning a world where none is lonely, none hunted or alien, this man, superb in love and logic, this man shall be remembered. Oh, not with statues rhetoric, not with legends and poems and wreaths of bronze alone, but with the lives grown out of his life, the lives fleshing his dream of the beautiful, needful thing. Thank you.
Well, now you know what I meant when I said how proud we are to have published this book and proud we are to have Tim Sandifer with us today to discuss it. it gives me great uh, pleasure now to introduce Juan Williams. Juan is a Fox News political analyst and one of America's leading political writers and thinkers. He's a co-host of the daily talk show, The Five, and a regular panelist for Fox News Sunday and Special Report. Over his long career, he has been an award-winning Washington Post columnist, White House correspondent, and NPR senior news correspondent, and also the host of NPR's nationally broadcast afternoon talk show, Talk of the Nation. In addition to prize-winning op-ed columns and editorial writing for the posts, he's authored several books, including three bestsellers. Among the more notable of his books are Eyes on the Prize, America's Civil Rights Years, Thurgood Marshall, American Revolutionary, and Muzzled, The Assault on Honest Debate. Juan's many credits include interviews in chronological order with President Reagan, George H.W. Bush, Clinton, George W. Bush, and Obama. We can't wait for the next one in this line, Juan. <laughs> Two of Juan's books uh, may be most relevant for today's discussion. His 2006 New York Times bestseller, Enough, The Phony Leaders, Dead End Movements, and Culture of Failure That Are Undermining Black America and What We Can Do About It, which created a national fear by igniting debate with point-blank analysis of black leadership in this country. And the 2007 co-authored book, I'll Find a Way or Make One, A History of Historically Black Colleges and Universities. I could go on with Juan's bio, but let's listen to him. Please welcome Juan Williams. Roger, thank you for that introduction. Uh, I guess you could have mentioned I was my high school valedictorian. You were going on there. So what if I was homeschooled? It's no big deal. <laughs> uh, it's a pleasure to be here at Cato this afternoon. Uh, I just wanted to first take my head off to Tim's book. I found it extremely valuable and instructive, so thank you, Tim. I think it's a real addition to the scholarship. And I look forward to hearing Jonathan Blanks' talk on this topic today. I wanted to begin by looking not so much at Douglas as at two men, the late Justice Thurgood Marshall and the man who succeeded him, Clarence Thomas. I do so because in the conclusion of Tim's very good book, Tim points to the idea that inherent rights are at the basis of so much of the breakthroughs that we have seen in terms of American law and in terms of the civil rights movement based on the works, the ideology that comes from Frederick Douglass. In fact, Peter Meyer, who's one of Douglass's biographers, says, said that he was really the man who made the most powerful case for the principle of inherent rights in the history of African-American political thought. So I want to start by looking at Thurgood Marshall and also Justice Thomas. 
Let me begin by saying I'm reminded of the story that was told about Richard Burton. Uh, the French actor Alan Delon was supposed to swing an axe at Burton uh, during a scene for a movie. But Delon slipped, and the axe came a bit too close to Richard Burton's head. And Burton said, be careful how you handle that axe, because there are plenty of French actors, but if you kill me, you'll have destroyed half of the Welsh actors in the world. <laughs> well, you've only got two black Supreme Court justices, Marshall and Thomas. Now, Lillian Hellman once said that nobody outside of a baby carriage or a judge's chamber believes that there's such a thing as an unprejudiced point of view. So let me put my prejudice on the table in dealing with these two historical figures, Marshall and Thomas. And this is a point of commonality. As I approach Marshall and Thomas as a journalist, a biographer, I note that their policies and their politics are, in my view, derivative of Frederick Douglass. In fact, if you walked into Justice Marshall's chambers, there was a bust of Frederick Douglass right on his desk, a fellow Marylander. And if you walk into Justice Thomas's chambers, there's a bust of a man who I think lived very much, very much in the model of Frederick Douglass, and that's Myers Anderson, who was Justice Thomas's grandfather, and he also has a painting of Booker T. Washington up above the fireplace. So I can tell you that I may be one of the few who can honestly claim to greatly admire both Thomas and Marshall. Both overcame great odds to achieve their personal success. Both have had visions of social justice that go beyond themselves. The vision, as so ably articulated by, uh, in this book, by what we see here in terms of Frederick Douglass's uh, political perspective. But I think that what is so amazing is that their lives fit the story that Douglass was trying to tell all of us in terms of race relations in America today. Let me begin with Marshall, who had a vision that was born even before he was in the goals of free blacks in Baltimore before the Civil War. It spoke to the desire to have public funds used to educate black children, also to have black teachers in public schools. And after the Civil War, the goal of black leadership turned to equality in all phases of life, including admission to juries and to political office, picking up on the ballot box and the jury box that Tim was talking about. When Marshall was born in 1908, just around the time the NAACP was founded, black America was dealing with a period of political retrenchment after the advances of the Reconstruction period. In his native Maryland, lynching and race wars were a staple of the news. Uh, I remember Marshall telling me that the only difference between Baltimore and the deepest southern city was that the trolley cars in Baltimore were not segregated. He went to segregated schools, then to an all-black school with an all-white faculty. That was Lincoln University, uh, then called the Black Princeton. And that he was aware, very much aware, of the distinction being made and the limits on him as a result of racial segregation in American life. 
Once he graduated from Lincoln, he then went on to Howard University here in Washington. His dean, Charles Hamilton Houston, another man of history, worked with him to produce the top law student at Howard. And together, they tried a case down the road in Baltimore, Maryland, of a young man whose desire was to attend the University of Maryland Law School. And the case rested on the idea that separate but equal required that there be a separate and equal law school to serve young black people who wanted to go to law school in Maryland. The state responded that, Your Honor, we intend to build a law school soon. The state legislature is appropriating funds. Thurgood Marshall stood up and said, if you don't have a separate law school now, then you must admit this young man to the University of Maryland Law School. Much to his surprise, the judge gaveled the courtroom to order and announced that that young man was to be admitted to the University of Maryland Law School. And by the way, the court recorder did not make note of what the young man said, but Marshall turned to the young man and said, what did he say? And as I said, there's no record of the response, but in my mind, I imagine that the young man was thinking, wow, now I have to go to law school? This is unbelievable. <laughs> that, of course, set the mode for what Marshall would do in terms of deconstructing segregation in American life, most famously in terms of the Brown decision of 1954. Now we move on to the second actor in this drama. And again, I think these two men stand, stand on the shoulders, so much, stand on the shoulders of Frederick Douglass. Justice Thomas had a distinctly, or has, I should say, a distinctly different vision. He is a man of the middle of this, or I should say, of the 20th century. I'm, I'm dating myself. He does not come from the kind of black American society or history that defined Justice Marshall. To the contrary, his defining experiences are the experience of poverty and broken family of his youth, while light-skinned Thurgood Marshall was a star of the black community as the son of a teacher and a head waiter out at Gibson Island, Thomas's experience with black society in Georgia was known by the derogatory appellation of ABC, America's blackest child. People derided his hair. The man who married his mother didn't want children around, and so he was sent to live with his grandfather, the man who would have the most powerful and profound impact on him, as I noted before, Myers Anderson. Anderson worked hard, built his own house, allowing Clarence Thomas to live in a house with a bathroom for the first time. Anderson worked brutal hours to buy a truck so he could go into business, the ice business for himself, delivering both oil and ice, I might add. And it was Anderson who decided that he wanted to pay $30 a year to Catholic schools to educate the future Justice Thomas. Myers Anderson would also take Thomas to NAACP meetings and have him stand there and read his grades. Anderson Thomas once told me thought his grandson's success was evidence that, quote, black people were as good as white people. The opportunity, the opportunity to quote from Tim's subtitle, to be a self-made man. Thomas at Myers urging then went to a white seminary, to Holy Cross, to Yale Law School. I, require, I recall him quoting Richard Wright as saying, black children, quote, want to be free in the way that white men are free. 
Thomas knew integration. He was brought up in integration. But it did not offer the panacea that Myers Anderson or even a Thurgood Marshall had hoped. He found condescending whites, middle class blacks who neglected poor black people and continued to disdain dark skinned people. This made Thomas all the more certain that black people had to rely on themselves, not integration for success. For example, he favored strong black schools, even if it meant sacrificing integrated schools. So here we come to a point of some division between the two. Thomas believes in the individual and the power of the economic engine and in the power of black people working to build black institutions. If he had, I would say, the clear line of thought, it would be along the lines of Booker T. Washington, maybe Marcus Garvey, Malcolm X, Thurgood Marshall, by contrast, the integrationist, the mainstream king dream as the solution to ills caused by America's racist history. He is in line with the NAACP, with W.E.B. Du Bois, with Martin Luther King. Of course, there are many ironies here. Who would have thought that the poor child from the broken home would be pilloried by the left, while the child of the black middle class would be given heroic stature among the left? But the irony of ironies, to my mind, is that both of these men stand on the shoulders, I don't think without a doubt, the shoulders of Frederick Douglass and the most important point in all black political thought, the idea that there are inherent rights in the Declaration of Independence and fulfilled in the Constitution that should allow black Americans to be treated as individuals and thus as full citizens of this nation that in fact, they have the tools by which to expand equal rights for blacks and other minorities in the founding documents of this country. In that sense, when we think about this, the bicentennial of Frederick Douglass's birth, we think not only about the growth of his idea of inherent rights, but to my mind, we think about how it has become a reality over this 200-year period that we have in the form of the law, the jurisprudence of these two African-American Supreme Court justices, the work, the very intellectual parameters set forth by Frederick Douglass come to life in a way that speaks to the birth, to the fulfillment of his dream. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Juan. And now we're going to hear from Cato's own Jonathan Blanks. John is a research associate in Cato's project on criminal justice and a writer in residence at Harvard University's Fair Punishment Project. His research is focused on law enforcement practices, overcriminalization, and civil liberties. And he's testified before the US Commission on Civil Rights on Police Accountability. A graduate of Indiana University, John has appeared on various TV, radio, and internet uh, media, uh, including HuffPost Live, Bloomberg Law Radio, uh, Voice of America. His work has been published in the Washington Post, the New Republic, the Atlantic, Denver Post, 
Chicago Tribune, Democracy Journal, Philadelphia Inquirer, Vox.com, Vice, Reason, Libertarianism.com, Timeline, and the Indianapolis Star, among others. Please welcome Jonathan Blanks. Thanks, Roger. And uh, I congratulate Tim on his wonderful book. And I really appreciated uh, Juan's comments about it. Um, I also want to take this moment to thank Roger for that I'm here at all. Um, 11 well, years ago. Because you did a very good job after I did the first edit of doing the second edit <laughs> and picking up things that I didn't notice. It, Not it, that Tim required a lot of editing. <laughs> I was actually, I, that, this is true, but. Um, I was actually speaking of the fact that 11 years ago, I was Roger's intern. And uh, he hired me that summer uh, after I did a stint at Reason Magazine. And so I, in a way, I actually quite literally owe Roger uh, my career. And I thank you so much for that. Um, I thank you all for coming. And I want to talk a little bit about why Tim's book is so important to me. Uh, as he mentioned in his comments that there is a strain of libertarianism that um, sort of embraces the um, sort of the neo-Confederate, the, the Dunning School interpretation of the Civil War. In, it, in addition, there is just you know a general lack of diversity, a, a lot of, um, say, libertarian functions, for example. And a few years ago, the editors of libertarianism.org asked me to write, why aren't there more black libertarians, after all? If the government has been so instrumental in oppressing black people in this country, why isn't the ideology that says the government should be smaller and everyone has individual rights, why aren't there more black people in it? And I have uh, turned this into a lecture that I now give to each intern class that we have. And I entitled it, Conceived in Liberty, A Brave History of Racial Tensions in the United States and the Liberty Movement. And the reason why I tie them together, and Tim alluded to this clearly, is that American libertarianism is tied to the founding. It is tied to the, the two, two of the greatest documents of liberty ever written, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Obviously, I've been carrying this around since I've worked here all, all, these, all these many years, and Roger wrote the foreword. And the thing is, though, if you think about the founding, now, Tim may disagree with me here, but it's paragons of virtue, it's paragons of liberty. We're, in fact, slave owners. It, not, not all of them, and we can argue about whether or not the Constitution is itself a, a slavery document. But if you're trying to reach out to people and you're trying to convince them that you are, you, what you mean is to improve people's liberty, and the people you hold up were slave owners, like Thomas Jefferson, who we all know about what happened with, with Sally Hemings. This is not something small. This is not something minor. The fact that libertarians embrace the founding, which isn't, you know, I'm not saying we, we shouldn't. However, to people who don't already agree with us, this is something that is going to be difficult. To those of us like me who, can, who have to go back to property records to find people I'm descended from instead of going to the census, this, the, the idealization of the founding isn't quite as sparkly to, to many of us. And it doesn't really stop with the founding. If you, move, if you go forward, um, many libertarians embrace Barry Goldwater. He was the, probably the most libertarian major party candidate in this country's history. He voted against the Civil Rights Act. 
Now, you, he, he did it for, I, for ideological reasons. I don't think that Barry Goldwater is a particularly racist man. But the fact of the matter is, it doesn't sell well to people who understand that that was the greatest piece of liberating legislation since emancipation. And therefore, with this history in mind, and with the subsequent, um, you know, the Ron Paul newsletters, the, the embrace of this, that the South was right, it's a really, really hard sell. So, and the, the common theme among all of these is that it's liberty, but liberty for white people. And that's not enough. And so I'm very glad Tim wrote this book because he takes slavery head on. He, 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 he takes on the idea that the South was right, demolishes it, and I, I commend him for that. He also talks about how slavery affected everyone involved, not just the, 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 the owned, who were broken personally, and, and he talks about um, Frederick recounting, excuse me, Douglas recounting his time with a slave breaker and how he rose up against him, and it's an absolutely compelling story. But he also talks about how it was like a cancer that infected the country. That slave owners who started off, you know, pretty nice, that well, once they got a hold of, what slavery got a hold of them. He, there's a story about uh, one of uh, the caretakers of, of Frederick Douglass, who wasn't a slave owner originally, tried to teach Frederick how to read, and then was uh, chastised by her husband and turned on Douglas over the course of her life, became a very bitter and awful woman. And so he, he, he takes this and talks about how the, in, the instrument of slavery warped the values of America. And another thing that is so great about Douglas in, in this book is that we can look to the documents that Thomas Jefferson wrote. We can look to the Declaration of Independence and we can, we can embrace it for what it is without having to embrace the man. What we, ha what we have with Douglas, on the other hand, is not only a man whose words we can embrace, whose ideas we can embrace, whose heroic story we can embrace, we can embrace him. And I'm not necessarily one for heroes, but you could do a lot worse than Frederick Douglass. We, we joke a lot about uh, you know, the president saying that you know, people are learning, uh, learning about Frederick Douglass more and more, but really he hasn't gotten his due as far as being one of the greatest Americans who has ever lived in any capacity. And I think Tim's book is a great introduction to a lot of people who don't know this rich history. Now, where I do have a small a bit of an argument with him, well, it, first of all, uh, in the characterization of what Ta-Nehisi has written, I don't agree. It, basically, what Ta-Nehisi has written over the course of his career is that there has been, he doesn't, he doesn't use these words, but there's always been this sort of silent constitution that has applied to black people that has not applied to whites. This exists today. I mean, we talk about, he talks about, as Tim mentioned, that white supremacy is still at the core of our political life. Our cities are still hyper-segregated. Southeast DC is not an accident. And I'm not talking about just the South. There's Baltimore, which is in, in a way a Southern city, but Chicago, Minneapolis, cities all over this country are still hyper-segregated even though there's no law mandating it. And we can talk about how the government played a role in that, 
but insofar as the rules still apply differently there than they do outside. Um, we have an esteemed uh, former judge, Janice Rogers Brown, wrote a case, um, wrote a concurrence in a case a couple years ago called US v. Gross. And in it, she talked about the gun recovery units out here in Southeast DC. And what she said was, okay, so let me get this right. I'm obviously paraphrasing. Uh, you have these gun recovery units where cops in tactical gear jump out and ask young black individuals to, to search their guns. Actually, she doesn't say, she, doesn't, she actually never uses the term black and she never uh, uses the term racism throughout the opinion. But she talks about it in DC. And, and, and in Southeast DC, and anyone who lives in DC knows what the racial makeup of Southeast is. And she's like, try doing this on Prospect Street in Georgetown. Again, anyone who's familiar with DC understands that we're talking about a Tony White posh neighborhood. And she's like, if you try this in Georgetown, and you think that people there will consider this consent, what is required for a search without a warrant, then I, I think you should also subscribe to the latest Bigfoot sighting. This is, she didn't have to use race. She didn't have to use racism, but it was clear in what she said, and it was clear what she wrote, that there, are, there still isn't one law for all people, as you said. And the, the, the fact that ta recognizes this, I think is actually emblematic of, of Douglas as well, saying, Yes, we should have these equal rights. Yes, we should be treated the same way, but we're not. And that's, I think, at the core of the distinction between it. Now, has Tan where uh, the difference is, I think, is Tanahazi has lost hope. He, he's admitted it. He has said that I'm not writing to give you hope. I'm not writing to be happy. I'm writing because this is what I see, and this is the history I've seen. And I, and I wouldn't say necessarily that if Douglas were alive today, he'd be a classical liberal. Clearly he was at the time. And I'm not arguing that. And we can learn so much from his writing and his work in that vein. But 120 years has passed since his death. The early 20th century happened. And what many black scholars call the nadir of black American history. That it was, if you think about that, worse than slavery. Because at least as slaves, you had protection as, not always but you had protection as property rights of someone else. And as Tim alluded to, in the early 20th century, white terrorism was common. They could just go into your, like drunk white men would just go into black neighborhoods and just start shooting up the place. You don't hear that about that, but it happened. If, and as Tim also alluded to in his book, Frederick Douglass, towards the end of his life, got disillusioned. He never, he never broke faith. But he, but he did start to question it. And if he had lived another 120 years before, and up to this date, and he still saw segregated communities, and he still saw law enforcement not treating people with equal dignity and equal respect, and that there is a separate constitution, I'm not sure that he would be. It's still a classical liberal. I would hope so, but I'm not sure that he would be. So, but that said, it is a minor niche. I recommend the book highly, particularly for those of you who don't know a lot about Frederick Douglass. He does deserve a better place in this country. He does deserve a better place in the American mind as a great thinker, and I commend Tim for a very good book. Thank you, John. Um, and again, the book is available outside. You can uh, 
pay, uh, purchase it uh, at a discount, and Tim will be glad to sign it for you. Uh, now, we're just going to have a little discussion among our panelists before we turn to you, the audience, with questions. Um, Tim, would you like to have a, just sure. a few remarks well, in response? Yeah, I, I think I can tie both of the, the comments together because um, first let me say about, about Jonathan Blink's I've learned a tremendous amount from Jonathan. I don't know that he realizes this, but the essays, for example, on why doesn't libertarianism appeal to more minority members have been ex incredibly instructive to someone who, like me, who is a, I'm, I'm so, I'm, I'm about as white as it gets. So that sort of thing helps. You I mean, came over on the Mayflower, didn't you? <laughs> so uh, I'm so white, I listen to John Mayer. Um, and so I've learned a great deal from Jonathan, and I think that, that I agree with almost all of the things that he said, and I, uh, particularly on the question of what, where Douglas would be if he were here uh, today, if he had seen the 20th century. And I also am not sure that he would have remained the classical liberal that he is. I, 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 you know, the, those experiences, for instance, I mentioned sharecropping, which are a, a real challenge to a hardcore Lockean property rights perspective. How do you deal with situations like that or with you know, segregation generally, which in some ways was like just a nationwide boycott where people were perfectly happy to be economically inefficient as long as it meant that they could be on you know, the, the master race and so forth. So, and you know, slavery touches everything in American life somehow, and it's amazing how little we pay attention to it. L law students never study slavery law. I often interview law students who have never read Dred Scott. It's amazing. You, just down the street is the U.S. Capitol building. The Capitol building has a statue on top of it of this woman wearing this absolutely ridiculous headdress. And the reason why is because the original model of the, of the statue, she had a soft cap on. That was the original plan. That was well known to be the symbol of the liberated slave. And Jefferson Davis, the senator who was in charge of the capital uh, uh, improvement that was going on at the time, absolutely would not allow a liberated slave on top of the US Capitol building and insisted that it be redesigned with this stupid looking hat. Uh, you look at the map of the United States, the 3630 line still is drawn halfway across the country like a scar on the face of this country as a result of slavery. And it's, it, this gets ignored much more often than it ought to. And, it, the, and I say this speaking as a, as a member of the white community, if there is such a thing, that a lot of white people don't know this history they think that it's not their history. They think it's, you know, it's not that they're against learning about it. They just don't pay much attention to it. They're not taught how important it is to them. And it's a shame because this is our history as Americans. It's as much my story as anybody else's story. And it deserves to be studied and learned by all of this country. We should all celebrate it together. I mean, like Douglas is a guy that we can all applaud and celebrate and think is a fantastic guy. There's no, no reason why there should be any exclusion there. And I think libertarians have the most to gain from seeing that point. Uh, but I agree that it would be hard to say where Douglas would stand if he were to have witnessed the, experience, the, the, nadir, of, or the nadir of black American history or to have seen um, the current situation, especially with the unwinnable, immoral, unconstitutional war on drugs, uh, the worst experience in this country since slavery, a civil war that has been maintained in the streets of this country for 40 years, blasting holes in this constitution at every step of the way. So I think he would have been horrified and shocked by that, and I would hope that we could talk him off the ledge. Anyway. Yeah. Juan, any comments? Well, I would just wanted to join the debate here 
in which we see Jonathan uh, make the case to Tim that, in fact, racism uh, continues in this country and that you might have a situation where you would have Mr. Coates agreeing that with Frederick Douglass that something different needs to be done here. I have a different point of view, which is that I think we have to look in terms of steady progress. That I often cite the case of looking in terms of my father, uh, my father's life and my life. And the idea is that my father lived in segregated neighborhoods, had limited job opportunities and the like, uh, and limited educational opportunities. His son, me, very different in terms of educational opportunities, living in an integrated neighborhood, very different in terms of uh, job opportunities. I don't think he could have dreamt about book contracts and TV deals. So this, to me, is evidence of tremendous progress. When Coates or President Trump speak about black America, oftentimes, it seems to me, they focus on the poorest people, the most deprived people, the most oppressed in modern American life. I think the president used the term in his inaugural address of American carnage, and it's got to stop. That's not the black America I know, not the black America I live in, not the black American experience that I've had. Certainly it is part of that experience, but I do not think that it is appropriate to characterize that as the extent of the experience. And for that reason, when you look to the two justices that I mentioned, Marshall and Thomas, I think you see people who are pragmatists, who are working to achieve change in a society that had slavery, that had legal segregation, separate but equal, uh, a society that had to struggle to pass anti-lynching laws and, of course, struggle to pass the 64 Civil Rights Act, 65 Voting Rights Act. This is not to excuse racism or its persistence in the society. It is to acknowledge that this is an ongoing struggle and that you have to articulate political principle as well as workable theory in order to master that change and to keep the change coming. And to that extent, to my mind, I see Douglass's political uh, principles as the foundation for the progress that has been made today. I see Roger looking at his watch, so I will stop. John, um, quick comment. I also agree things have gotten better. I mean, uh, when my father was born in 1928, uh, what, the eighth of 12 kids? His dad died before he was, before he was uh, 15 years old. Um, my grandfather grew up as a sh on the sharecropper's son in 1883. He was 12 years old when, when Frederick Douglass died. This is not ancient history, right? This is, it, things have clearly gotten better. And my, my father told me very young, when I was very young, um, I'm paraphrasing again, it's like because of who you are, read black, or what you are, that you might have a harder time than other people, read white. Get over it, move on. And the thing is, is because I look so white, because I sound like I do, I don't have to deal with the problems that other people do. But I understand that they happen. I've run into police officers I've just met, and, they, and I, oh, my friend was 
uh, mentioned that I was working on a piece on police misconduct. And he said, um, so he's working on police misconduct. Uh, what would you do if uh, you asked to search uh, a guy and he refused? And the cop who I just met that day is like, are there any African-Americans in the room? <laughs> and he, with all the dripping scorn of the word we all are thinking about. And my friend was like, well, actually, his dad's black. You should do that. And he's like, well, you know, we'd probably just rough him up and search him anyway. Like, it was just common. This is a problem. I work in public policy for this reason. I work in this public policy to get this to stop from happening. So, yes, things have gotten extraordinarily better. Things are continuing to get better for the most part. But that doesn't mean we, can't, we should not look at the, the harsh realities that too many people in this country continue to face. All right, we're now going to turn to uh, you in the audience for your questions. Uh, we, please uh, wait for the microphones to come and uh, identify yourself in any affiliation you may have, and please ask a question. Uh, let's start uh, with this uh, gentleman right up here with his hand up, yes? And then on this side, I'm going to call on one side and then another. Anybody up here? Uh, yes, this gentleman right here. Go ahead. Uh, my name is Kyle. I'm from Heritage Foundation. Um, there's a bill out there right now, the Frederick Douglass uh, Human Trafficking Prevention Act. Um, I was just wondering what um, any of you experts had to say, um, if it's going to pass. Um, I think it's in the Senate now. Um, and any thoughts you had on that particular what, bill? Uh, what does the bill purport to do? Um, prevent human trafficking, allocate some money to help address it and educate people on recognizing it in the country. Comment on that? Uh, I haven't followed the legislation uh, at all. It's the first time hearing of it. Um, generally, in my experience, laws named after people are generally bad. <laughs> um, it, 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 they always have really good intentions, but usually tend to be more punitive than they need to be. Um, so, uh, I, but I can't really speak to the legislation since I haven't seen it, though. Okay, we have a question right here. I'm only vaguely familiar with the, the legislation. My concern is, and I think that's been discussed uh, a lot on, in the pages of Reason Magazine recently, is that the definition of human trafficking might be so broad as to in include people who should not be included in that category. And when you read the statistics, Elizabeth Nolan Brown at Reason has been collecting on this, it very often turns out that by far the most alleged victims of human trafficking are women who are, have, have chosen to, to uh, be sex workers and are being wrongly labeled in that way, in a way that deprives them of freedom and, uh, and you know, is a waste of, of public resources. This gentleman right here, no question over okay. Stephen, sure. One issue that we, no one has addressed is we talk about unquestioned adulation of limited government. In 1865, the federal government was significantly larger than it was in 1860 and took on functions. The genesis of the modern federal government goes back to practices needed to raise huge armies and taxes during to win the Civil War. So was this the devil's bargain or is in the protection of liberty, must the federal government be of a certain size to protect the liberties of all its citizens? So my answer to that would be, um there's sort of this general libertarian myth about the golden age before the Louisiana Purchase when the government was the right size and then along came Lincoln who tyrannized over the South and everything's been hell since. And 
even if you accept all of the other terms of that argument, it ignores the New Deal, the Great Society, the progressive movement of the early 20th century, and so forth. So that, are, that sort of theory really doesn't hold water. It is true that the Civil War, you know, uh, uh, created a great deal of innovations in American federal government. Um, the one that's often used is uh, the military draft, right? Um, of course, there was military conscription before the Civil War. It was just at the state level instead of the federal level. So it wasn't exactly the Garden of Eden before then either. So I, on one hand, I disagree with that. On the other hand, it would also be bad history to say, that this, that this myth is totally wrong, because it is true that there are things left over from the Civil War that, uh, you know, and the general crusading attitude of the early progressive movement in the, in the 1880s and 1900s, I think owes a lot to the fact that these people who were the, leading that movement at that time were themselves veterans of the war, they had experienced the war, they had that sense of high moral crusade, and now they were putting it to work in a different direction that you and I might find politically objectionable. So there is an influence of course, from, from the expansion of the federal government during the Civil War on today's regulatory welfare state. But it's one strand in the huge historical rope. So I don't buy the argument that you often hear, um, particularly the paleo-libertarian, paleo-conservative line, that if only it hadn't been for Lincoln, we would still be living in the ideal Lockean world of the, of the early American founding. There was no ideal founding anyway. And of course, keep in mind that that pre- prelapsarian libertarian ideal was restricted to people who were not enslaved and who were not female and so forth, so. Well, Tim, you just mentioned the progressives and the early progressives were much as you said, but then later they evolved Wilson and so forth into a very racist uh, strain. Yeah. And Thomas Sowell has just written on that subject in the National Review. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I, I will look at that. But uh, yeah, I think the, I think that the the history work that is, remains to be done for any of the, any of you libertarian history uh, PhD students out there is to trace the ideological connection between the progressive leadership of say 1900 and the uh, post Civil War Southern leadership class who were excluded from holding public office. And so, what did they do? What politicians always do when they can't hold public office? They went to teach at a university. So, I think their students were the progressives, and that they taught. A lot of these doctrines to their students. I, that's, that's historical work that remains to be done. I don't think it's been done. Yeah. Now, listen, I'm trying to get as many questions as possible, so I want to see hands. This right here, this gentleman, and the hand over here. Yeah. Hi. Um, David Krukoff, Douglas County, Maryland. Um, in 1892, Douglas said, the District of Columbia is the one spot where there is no government for the people, of the people, and by the people. Its citizens submit to rulers whom they have no choice in selecting. They obey, they obey laws they have no choice in making. They have no voice in making. They have plenty of taxation, but no representation. In the great questions of politics in the country, they can, they can march with neither army, but are relegated to the position of neuters. In light of that quote, um, would, if, would Frederick Douglass, if he lived today, be honored by the uh, enfranchisement of the residents of the District of Columbia through the creation of a county that bore his name. I can address that since I've testified on the subject. I know, I was there when you testified. <laughs> yes, that's and right. I, 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 and the answer is he probably would be, but that's going to take a constitutional amendment, and that's not going to happen. It didn't take one when Arlington uh, retroceded. Okay. Uh, right here. Uh, Lou Gagliano. Juan, I terribly respected what you said about uh, your, 
the black population. And but I think the, the question I have is the marginalized members of, of that group. Why haven't we done a better job of really bringing solutions there? And I, I'm reminded of some of the work that the not-for-profits do in inner-city areas to support the, them and bring them to a better place. So why can't we? What in your mind prevents us from taking some of these lessons and, and implementing them and supporting them in a way that will really make a big difference to, to, the, the, to that group? Well, let me start by answering your very good question uh, by saying I feel a little bit like I'm inside a family argument among libertarians listening to this debate as to what the true history uh, would be. But I would make this point, and I think it would satisfy you in terms of a response, that in our history, you look at a place like the District of Columbia, and you see that after the end of the Civil War and the Reconstruction period, that there are black people flocking to the idea of a federal government as protecting their rights and their humanity. Later, you'll see the so-called great migration of blacks to the north. Uh, in this case, you're seeing government seen as enabling individuals to prosper and thrive, to exercise their liberties, whereas previously government was acting to retard their development. So in that regard, when you ask about why we can't make greater progress, I think we have so many fixed points uh, given our history that it's very difficult. Uh, we were talking earlier, I think Jonathan was talking about Southeast, Washington. Well, you look at the idea of everything from the real estate industry and redlining back to the federal government and post-war loans to veterans to establish housing and the discriminatory basis on which it's done. You look at the idea of no penalties for employment segregation and open exercise of bias against people, even without regulatory burden, but simply on a basis of skin color. And you understand how, I think that Jonathan said this as well, we are so close to this history. This is not as distant as we might theoretically conceive because we are sitting here together having this conversation. And the consequence is that once doors were opened to greater individual liberty, you have people who have thrived by virtue of education, strong families, uh, economic wherewithal. On the contrary, you have people who have been left behind. I would cite the schools as the prime example of this. The quality of school that you have to offer your children, it seems to me, is the key, it's the bottom rung, if you will, of that ladder of upward mobility that would allow you then, and your, allow your family, to become free, totally, or truly, I should say, free people. Um, there's a question right here. Over here, anybody? Okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, David Koss in uh, Montgomery County, Maryland. Uh, we, we have read uh, several times about uh, Douglas's visits to the White House, uh, and including one where Lincoln had to insist the guards let him in. But uh, I, I, I'm curious, uh, since we've been playing the, the what-if uh, game, uh, and we have a, his successor, 29th removed, who seems to believe he's still alive, what, what would Douglas t tell the current occupant if he had the chance? Uh, you know, I, was, I, I kind of expected that I'd be asked this question, so I was, I was thinking about it the other day, and 
On one hand, I think it's obvious that Douglas would have had a lot of problems with the current president. On the other hand, Douglas was a very, he was a very intelligent political leader and he was a very gentlemanly man. Um, he, was, he saw it as very important not to be blinded by party loyalties and to try and find something positive to say and negative to say about people together. So the, a great example of this is his relationship with Grover Cleveland. So Cleveland was the first Democrat to be elected president after the war. And by that time, Douglas had been disappointed by Republican effort, failures of Republican efforts to, to enforce rights in the, in the post-war South. And you would expect that he would think, well, this is the end of everything, you know, to elect a Democrat who's, who has no commitment to protecting civil rights in the South. But in fact, he got along quite well with Cleveland. They, he and Cleveland had dinner together at, on one occasion at the White House. And, um, or I'm sorry, not at the White House, but uh, they did have dinner together. Um, the, President Cleveland, of course, had a controversial marriage of his own, as did Frederick Douglass. By that time, he, was, he had remarried, his first wife died, and he had remarried to a white woman, which you can imagine how scandalous that was in 1883. And here he, he, was, in, he, he was having dinner, 1884, having dinner with the, the president of the United States. And he mentions that, that uh, they got along very well, despite the difference in their politics. So I think Douglass would have dealt with it in a respectful manner. I think that's probably the best way to answer that. Uh, I do want to say a word about Lincoln, by the way, because Lincoln, uh, Douglas always had a, a really difficult relationship with Lincoln, and historians debate to this day just how close they really were, because after Lincoln's assassination, he became a martyr, you couldn't really say negative things about him, and yet Douglas did say negative things about him in his speech when uh, dedicating the, the Freedmen's Monument to Lincoln up there uh, behind the Capitol building. And very carefully phrased, very studiously worded, but also not, not being afraid to come out and say, uh, as, Lincoln sa as Douglas said, he was preeminently the white man's president. I'm, you know. So um, it's hard to say what Lincoln would have thought, or what Douglas would have thought of Lincoln if Lincoln had not been assassinated and had been able to oversee Reconstruction. You know, Lincoln was willing to temporize on things like the demands for, for the vote. For, for the freed slaves. And Douglas, of course, the vote was the number one political cause of his post-war life. Whether he would have been able to persuade Lincoln to change his mind to support universal suffrage or not, it, it's just a realm of speculation. Yes, young lady right here. Jennifer Butler, I'm also a homeschool mom, so um, hopefully my child will also be valedictorian. Um, <laughs> I was I'm, joking. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, um, I'm curious about Douglas the man. We talk a lot about Douglas in my home uh, just because of his passion, right? Even as a child, it was illegal for him to read. In fact, you know, he went to go live with uh, a, one of his master's family members. The wife there was starting to teach. They realized, oh, wait a second, that's illegal. You can't do it. But he had a passion to learn, would exchange his meals on the streets of Baltimore with poor white children to, to learn a little bit to, to read. Uh, and then growing up, right, as an adult, we see him continuing to fight for freedom in the women's suffrage movement. I think he died from a heart attack um, coming back from a women's suffrage event where he spoke at. As you learned more about this individual, what was it? Where did he get this drive from, right, this drive to, to grow, to learn, uh, and this passion, right, for freedom and for other people? So um, 
Well, you know, part of it is just, you know, the, the gifts of nature. But uh, I think a large part of it was romantic literature and the atmosphere of Victorian rhetoric. I think one thing that I, that I most love about Douglas, I was trying to find the quote in here, but I can't. One of the things, the, the thing I love most about Douglas is his writing is just, what a, what a gloriously skillful writer he really was. Uh, he, he uses this high-flown Victorian-style rhetoric that nobody does anymore because it demands too much of the audience. It expects the audience to be educated. You know, it, it, there's a lot of, I mean, seriously, a lot of references to Shakespeare and the Bible, and all, there's sort of this expected canon. And Douglas grew up in an atmosphere surrounded by that kind of oratory. You know, he would read the speeches of John Quincy Adams and of uh, Stephen Douglas in the newspapers. So he was surrounded by that. And then, of course, this was the high era of romantic literature. And he loved Victor Hugo and Alexander Dumas, particularly Dumas. His very favorite book was The Count of Monte Cristo. And I think he really kind of, you know, at when t- I suspect that when times got him down, he probably reflected on his literary heroes and tried to think, what would what would the Count of Monte Cristo do? And that I think that's probably where a lot of that comes from. And I I admire that so much about Douglas. I very much am a hero's guy, and uh, I I think that's a, a magnificent thing. There's this old story, not true, but based on truth, that when he was an old man, a young man came to visit Douglas at Cedar Hill, which. Have you all been to Cedar Hill? If you haven't been, you've got to go. You've got to go. It's got all the original stuff there and everything. It's amazing to stand there in his, in his study. Anyway, a uh, young man came to visit him and said, Mr. Douglas, what should I do with my life? And Douglas said, agitate, agitate, agitate. So. Yes, gentlemen, right here. Hey, Josh Windham Institute for Justice. So I, your point about, uh, Tim, your point about Frederick Douglass's pride being one of his sort of animating characteristics. I think that's totally true. Um, what do you think about more modern um, critics of race, race relations, especially those on sort of the social justice where you're left? Do you think they're animated by the same sort of pride? And if not, what are they animated by? You alluded to the fact that Ta-Nehisi Coates might be motivated by nihilism, if that's even a motivation, but, you know, to his, you know, sort of compatriots who are not motivated by nihilism, what do you think they're motivated by? Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't have the time or inclination to go into my long list of complaints against Coates, but uh, I do think that, um, that, I think the answer to that is definitely not. Douglas's version of pride was, it was individual above all else without consideration to race. Um, he, and he was quite open about this. He rejected the, the idea of race pride, which he called silly and nonsense. Um, now, again, how that would have been affected by the experience of the early 20th century if he had been around for it, you can't say. But at the time, at least, Douglas was fundamentally an individualist who, um, although he didn't come right out and say it much of the time, even at the earliest part of his career, he was opposed to the uh, religious v- uh, belief in humility. Um, you find this in his conflict with the Quaker abolitionists. One of the Quaker abolitionists in England called him by far the least lovable of all of the abolitionists because he was so proud and quick to take offense. That was a white person saying quick to take offense. So who knows what it was that Douglas was taking offense at and whether he was right. I, he probably was right, you know. 
Um, so Douglas was a very, he, he was fundamentally individualistic and proud person who saw this, saw pride as essential to his mission, even when he was working for Garrison. He puts that story about the fight with Covey in his, auto, in his memoirs, in 1845, which is published by Garrison, who's an, an absolute pacifist. And now he says, well, it was, a, so I was, it was only self-defense. I, I never punched the guy. But he, did, he says right in there, I punched another guy. And, and then of course, then he went on from there to support John Brown. He went to his grave thinking John Brown was, was the greatest hero in American history. Um, he was, he said, nothing will end slave catching more quicker than killing a few slave catchers. Douglas was very much not a pacifist and, and, and because he believed it was essential to pride. Another aspect of this is Douglas meeting with Lincoln to insist on the enrollment, uh, the enlistment of black soldiers in the army. And the reason wasn't just to boost the ranks of the military. He thought it was important for the soldiers themselves. He thought it was important for the freedmen to learn the virtues of holding the gun, of fighting for their own freedom and being able to say, I did that. That was absolutely essential to their future freedom. Because otherwise, if, if they didn't break out of the mindset of, of learned helplessness, they wouldn't be able to make it on their own. That's a, a profoundly important theme for Douglas. So I would say, now this is just my proclivities, but I would say that Douglas is the foremost spokesman for the idea, for the relationship of individual pride and freedom before Ayn Rand. This gentleman right here. Yes, sir. Um, <clears throat> Martin Moulton. Um, I disagree with the point that African-Americans aren't... Uh, likely to embrace liberty. Um, the most popular libertarian in the nation's capital is a black person, and that's me, um, by popular vote. Um, but a question I had for Tim was, what would uh, Douglas have thought of institutions like Mile No Modern Dartmouth or Jonathan's Harvard, uh, which matriculated African-Americans as early as 1828 when Douglas was about 10 years old? Well, I'll take a little bit of, um, of alumni pride here myself and say uh, my wife, who's back there, my wife and I are graduates of Hillsdale College, which admitted black students uh, decades before the war. And in fact, Douglas spoke at Hillsdale twice and a photograph that he took while he was in Hillsdale is the cover photograph of my book. So thanks to Hillsdale College for allowing us to use that. Um, I think Douglas, now see, Mr. Williams brought up what I think is really the most important but so complicated we can't discuss it point. Uh, the most interesting controversy of the 20th century in American politics is that fight or, it, you know, that, that dis dispute between Du Bois and Washington uh, about what, how, what, how do you address this? What's the best way to address this problem? And that split between those two reverberates to this day. It's, it's in the, the distinction between Marshall and Thomas today. It's throughout our lives about how do you fix a social problem that affects politics? Is it enough to do it? Should you do it politically or, or is it, do you have to be, does it, is it a slow social process? I think Douglas thought it was a, so, a slow social process. I think Douglas probably would have said that in the end, the only thing that'll cure racism is individual people not being racist. And that's gonna take a damn long time but there's no substitute for it. I think that's what his answer would have been. So things like legacy admissions and the, the distortions that were caused by, by uh, the racist private practices of the time, I, my personal thought is I think Douglas probably would have said there's ultimately no political solution to that because politics is just too blunt an instrument 
to resolve that kind of a problem. But I could very well be wrong. And if you read Du Bois, I mean, Du Bois is very persuasive that, no, no, it has to be a political solution. It has to be activism in the streets. And, you know, I, I don't pretend to have the answer to that paradox. It's the greatest paradox in American politics, I think. We have time for just one last question. The person up there with the microphone. Uh, yes, please. I, you know, uh, the uh, homeschool mother... Could you talk into the microphone, please? Okay, the, the homeschool mother brought up the point, you know, what were the motivations that, that made uh, Frederick Douglass the man that he was? And, of course, you all responded to the effect, you know, his belief in conservative principles and values as well as his background. But no one talked about the fact that he was also a Christian and a minister of the gospel and the impact that that had on his life. And apart from the fact that he may have been individualistic and uh, prideful, does not dispute the fact that he was also a man of biblical studies and learning. And I just want to know how you would share about his relationship with, you know, the Bible and with the Lord. Yeah, no, that is a very, is a very valid point. Toward the end of his life, according to his earliest biographer, Douglas essentially abandoned any belief in organized religion of any sort. He became sort of vaguely spiritual, but really more secular. But early in life, I think Douglas was, was more Christian than we may realize. I think he was very devoutly religious, I suspect. I don't have any evidence to back this up, really, um, early on. But we know that he was willing to hold Sunday school even violating his master's orders to hold Sunday school while he was enslaved, uh, risking you know, very serious reprisals for doing so and teaching other slaves to read at these Sunday schools because he believed it was necessary for them to read the Bible. And when you read um, in, his, uh, in My Brondage and My Freedom, that's the second version of his book published in 1855, he, he you know, particularly Thomas Auld, his, his, uh, one of his masters is particularly singled out as a villain and over and over again, Douglas says, this man would beat me and abuse me even though he was my brother in the church. And he would emphasize this over and over again. And of course, he stormed out of a church service even after he escaped slavery when it provided uh, the Eucharist in a segregated service, first the whites and then the blacks. Okay, we've run out of time. This book is available outside at a discount. Uh, pick up a copy. Tim will be glad to sign it for you. Let's conclude with a warm round of applause for our speakers. <laughs>